It's a maritime tragedy that's cemented in time. With the help of folk singer Gordon Lightfoot, you've likely heard the woes of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. The ship met its ill-fated end over 46 years ago in Lake Superior and remains one of the most mysterious and controversial wrecks to date. The news tells you what's happening now. But what about what happened then? Welcome to NBC15's new podcast, Making Wisconsin a History of the Badger State. I'm Gabriella Rusk. And I'm Charlie Shortino. Together we'll take you through cultural and historical moments that have shaped our state and who we are. Built to haul taconite, which is used to make steel, from Duluth to port cities, the Big Fitz was a behemoth, constantly setting milestones and completing an estimated 748 trips before her untimely demise. At her inception, the Edmund Fitzgerald was the longest ship on the Great Lakes. Her 729-foot hull was just a foot shy of the maximum length allowed for passage on the newly opened St. Lawrence Seaway. The Fitzgerald, also known as the Toledo Express and the Tide of the American Side, was constructed in 1957. She was conceived as a business enterprise for Northwestern Mutual and named after the company's president at that time. According to the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum, the Edmund Fitzgerald quickly became a record-breaking workhorse on the open waters. The ship's interior was just as impressive as her design accolades, with a guest lounge, tiled bathrooms, a full kitchen, and two dining rooms. The Fitz was more than a workhorse. It truly was a luxurious ship. On November 9, 1975, the mighty Fitzgerald set sail with over 26,000 tons of taconite ore pellets. Her 746-mile voyage from Superior, Wisconsin to Detroit, Michigan was a familiar path on the equally mighty Lake Superior. In the midst of her tragic trip, the ship sank 17 miles northwest of Whitefish Bay in Michigan, claiming the lives of all 29 crewmen. That catastrophic day, the National Weather Service issued a warning for strong winds on Lake Superior. The seasoned Captain Ernest McSorley was no stranger to strong November storm on the Great Lakes, but no crew was prepared for the tumult the waters would soon bring. Yeah, you think uh, you could come out and go back and uh, take a look in the area? This digitized radio chatter is between the Coast Guard and the Arthur Anderson, the last ship to have contact with the Fitzgerald. 
Not mm-hmm. unusual, Charlie? That's Not unusual. I mean, you know, this type of storm we will see during the falls, and, and they can be very strong. Late October, early to mid-November, we tend to get the, the strongest ones coming through, and they take the same track. They'll develop over the plains, central to southern plains, and move northward through Minnesota, and then across Lake Superior and into Canada. And that's a typical track for that time of year. Now, as we get into winter, December, January, that track shifts a little more to the south, and those are the storms that bring us big snow. But they tend to be big wind and rain producers uh, for Minnesota, parts of Wisconsin, and Lake Superior. And these are the storms that, that sink ships on Lake Superior. And there have been a lot of ships sunk during the months of October and November just geographically, it puts it kind of in the crosshairs of this yeah. type of storm. Um, and meteorologically, this time of year is w- is when it happens. Now, Lake Superior is also obviously the biggest Great Lake, and you have a lot more open water in Lake Superior than you would in Michigan or Huron or Ontario. And does that Ontario mean it kind of funnels the storm? I mean, how does that work? Well, what it does is it it provides more of a fetch. And fetch is just an open area where wind flows freely without obstruction. And the the only obstruction is the water and the waves. And and when you get wind blowing that strong, it can generate big-time waves. And in this case, you know, the waves were estimated 35, 40. There were some estimates and computer analysis done where some of the waves could have been above 50 feet. Now, you had mentioned this was the biggest ship on the Great Lakes at the time. So why did this one sink and not, you know, some of the other ones that were smaller? Well, part of the reason for that is, you know, this is this is a business. You know, they're in the business of making money. So the way they make money is shipping these taconite pellets from one spot to another. The more you ship, the more money you make. So they had applied to raise the water line on the ship, which basically means where the water meets the hull of the ship. So they they were going to raise that, which means I want to put more taconite into my ship. I want to put more heavy ore pellets right, on my ship. Right, which lowers, because it's heavier, mm-hmm. it pushes the ship farther into the water. So they, they applied for that and they got it. And I think it changed the water line by four feet, which wow. is significant. So there were portions of the deck of the Edmund Fitzgerald when fully loaded that were only 11 and a half feet above the waterline. Which a 30-foot wave, I mean, it's 30-foot no wave, yeah, do the math. Yeah. I mean, you're 11 and a half feet above and you're getting struck by 35, 40-foot waves. So mm-hmm. all that water is crashing down on top of the deck, which caused damage and, and eventually ended up sinking the ship. And we'll get to some theories on that, on how and why that sunk. But yeah, I mean, this this type of storm, you, you know, we'll see these about every three years, a storm similar in magnitude to the one that, that sank the Edmund Fitzgerald. I still think it ranks in the top 10 mm-hmm. uh, of storms strength-wise that have moved through the upper Midwest in the past hundred years. A few hours into their unfortunate excursion, the Edmund Fitzgerald joined a second freighter, the Arthur M. Anderson, which was led by Captain Jesse Cooper. Due to the poor weather, Cooper and McSorley decided to alter their course to the north, seeking shelter from the Ontario shore. 
However, as the night turned into day, the National Weather Service upgraded the warning. There was officially a storm brazing Lake Superior. Now, by a storm, you know, they, they classify these on lakes as gales, storms, and then you get into hurricane force winds. So a storm is technically winds that are under hurricane strength, but in excess of 50 miles an hour, we'll say. The Edmund Fitzgerald, the faster freighter of the two, pulled ahead of the Arthur M. Anderson, and as the Anderson trailed just 10 miles behind, the two captains kept in touch with each other over radio. When the Arthur Anderson asked how the Fitz was handling its problems, Captain McSorley delivered his brief last words, We're holding our own. Captain Cooper recalls this line as he recounts the Fitzgerald's last moments. I asked him how he was making out with his problem. Uh, he said he lost those vents and he had a lift and he said he was holding his own. Uh, the last time I talked with him, he said he was holding his own and uh, that's the uh, last time I uh, lost contact after that. The Edmund Fitzgerald would disappear from the radar and sink fathoms below the surface. No distress signal was sent. The ship was found broken into two parts, and it was later determined that all 29 aboard had died. With no survivors, the only ones who might have any idea as to what happened are the sailors who had been in contact with the ship prior to her downfall. Members of the Anderson and other mariners are the ones who braved Lake Superior's harsh waves to try and locate the Edmund Fitzgerald, but as you can hear in this uncovered radio conversation, the Fitz's sudden sinking left many questions unanswered. Many details remain unknown about the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald, leaving even experts to a range of hypotheses of that night's events. Of course, the harsh November 10th storm was a large contributing factor, but it's hard to pinpoint exactly what caused the ship to drag to the depths of Lake Superior. After all, the Arthur Anderson survived the storm and is still in active service to date. So, Charlie, we talked about the kind of overtaxing, overloading of the ship, but what are some other kind of theories here uh, or reasons why uh, it may have sunk? You know, one theory is that it was overloaded, and we already went over that. It wasn't technically overloaded because they had clearance to to raise their water line and thus be able to put uh, more taconite in, into that ship. 26,000 tons, by the way. That's 52 million pounds. It's a lot of ore. It's a lot of, that is a lot of weight. And it's, and it's a, you know, it's a big boat too. It's 729 feet long. But, you know, we had talked about how when you raise that water line, or in other words, lower the boat by putting more into it, you're more susceptible to the waves. And obviously there were huge waves due to this storm. And, you know, some people have said that Captain McSorley was too aggressive, and he was known to be aggressive during storms. After all, it was one of the largest ships on Lake Superior at the time, and many people thought that it couldn't sink or wouldn't sink. But that's one theory as well, that he kind of he pushed it a little, a little too hard. Another possibility is that uh, the captain of the Arthur Anderson, Cooper, 
uh, reported that just before he lost the Edmund Fitzgerald on radar, that uh, he experienced two very large waves in succession, uh, upwards of 35 to 40 feet. And, you know, there's a, there's a known uh, phenomenon on Lake Superior called the Three Sisters, where when you get big storms, sometimes three very large waves will form in a row. I don't know why, but it happens. Huh. And he experienced at least two of those and may have missed the third, the third one. But, you know, with three in succession coming and uh, the Edmund Fitzgerald already listing, it had taken on some water, so by listing it was leaning one way, and these waves coming over the top in succession, there wasn't time for the water to get off of the ship deck, and then the, the next wave would hit, and the next one, and it was a culmination of three waves that there were too much weight and just pushed it down and, and uh, perhaps pushed the bow down underwater. Uh, so that's, that is another theory on uh, what happened. Another theory is that um, there was some structural damage. The, the ship had been on Lake Superior for a long time at this point, and it had uh, scraped the bottom a few times, and some people believe that there may have been some structural issues with the boat that, that led you know, in combination with these big waves and kind of the twisting of, of the hull of the boat that it kind of snapped it in two, uh, and then it sunk immediately after that. And then there's the the hatch covers that seem to be a, one of the more accepted theories that mm. somehow the hatch covers, which are basically huge pieces of metal that cover up the holes where the taconite is loaded, so there are a bunch of these in succession, and you know they load the taconite into each of these things and then cover them up with these very heavy steel hatch covers. They're one piece; it's like a lid, and then they, you know, they kind of crank them down. They have they have latches that hold them down. And one of the theories is that they weren't latched properly or weren't latched at all in yeah. some cases, or the waves jarred them and water poured into um, the hold. And that eventually got to be too much and, and sunk the ship. So that's another one. Another theory is, is that they actually did at that point hit a shoal and it tore a hole in the bottom and, and that's what led to the sinking. So, you know, there are a lot of different theories and the bottom line is whether it was a structural defect, whether it was a hatch cover problem, whether it was the captain's error, the storm sunk the ship because the, the ship would still be around if it wasn't for that storm. So it may have been a combination of things. I believe that, you know, if you have taconite pellets yeah, and you have them in the hull of a ship and the ship is listing, all that cargo is going to shift as well. And it may have kind of shifted over to one side and, and even furthered the list, made it worse and worse. And then as the waves hit the ship, it may have rolled it over. So, you know, there are lots of things that could have happened, but the bottom line is 29 people lost their lives, mm -hmm. and that boat is still at the bottom of Lake Superior in Canadian water. Hmm. Charlie, you mentioned the storm sort of, you know, likely being the reason that this ship sank. How has this improved the National Weather Service and its understanding of the types of storms and gales that you mentioned that can form over the Great Lakes? 
Well, first of all, when Captain McSorley left Duluth, the forecast he looked at was garbage. <laughs> it was a it was a garbage forecast. It was a bad forecast by the National Weather Service, and it, they've acknowledged that. The original what forecast... What makes it garbage? It was vastly incorrect. So they had predicted that the area of low pressure would pass by to the south of Lake Superior, and that there would be some wind, but nowhere near as much wind. And then, you know, as... We progressed through time. The National Weather Service was upgrading their forecasts mm-hmm. um, as as they went along, and you know increased the the warnings, so to speak, upgraded them uh, as they went along, and eventually ended up with a storm warning. So they went from just a regular storm to uh, to a gale warning, and then a storm warning. And uh, indeed, there there were some gusts in excess of hurricane strength. There were 80-plus mile-per-hour gusts. So the forecast was difficult, let's say, for Captain McSorley because he believed it. Yeah, he went in blind. I mean, the crew went in blind expecting the forecast to stay course, and it didn't. It didn't, and that happens. It doesn't happen as often now. Remember, this is 1975, and, you know, we were just kind of starting to get into the computer age at that point as far as weather forecasting goes. Mm. So, you know, you didn't have as much to go on back then. So, you know, I'm not going to indict the National Weather Service for one bad <laughs> not forecast. Not today, anyway. But, but you know, things have gotten a lot better, and, and I don't really ever see a storm like this happening without considerable advanced warning at this point. So, yeah, forecasting has certainly changed because of it. There have been laws that have changed as far as shipping goes as well. Ships now have to have survival suits. They're required to have those on board uh, on Lake Superior in each crew member's quarters. Uh, They have to have emergency position radio beacons in the ships as well. Navigational charts improved, so they've mapped out the shoals a little better. So, so people know where those are. Uh, they have rescinded the law that allows you to change the load line, which we talked Tell about you. before. And um, inspection programs have improved for ships as well. So all this stemming from the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Yeah, and, and you know, despite all of that, the memory of, of the Edmund Fitzgerald still lives on today. In addition to the heart-aching lyrics of Lightfoot, several regions around the Great Lakes commemorate the wreck every November, and the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum honors its history in Whitefish Point, Minnesota. Additionally, several dive expeditions helped to uncover artifacts and information about the ship. In 1995, the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society helped organize a dive to recover the Edmund Fitzgerald's bell. The society says that family members who were present said the bell's recovery brought them some closure 20 years after the fact. Now, 46 years later, I sat down with a UW professor, Steve Ackerman, an expert in atmospheric and oceanic sciences. In this interview, he details the perfect storm that led to this ship's tragic end. I guess, you know, Maybe let's start at the beginning, even before the, you know, wreck took place, right? Um, 
you know, walk me through some of the events that happened that maybe led to this wreck um, and, and the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Yeah, so um, in terms of the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald and the things that led up to it, uh, as a weather person, um, there is no doubt in my mind that the cause of the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald was the weather. Um, and so when you look back to uh, the end of the shipping season in 1975, the Edmund Fitzgerald and other ships were getting ready for one of their last runs of the season. Um, and on November 9th, uh, before they took off as they were loading the ship, it was a beautiful day. Uh, in November, nice and calm and sunny. Um, and then a uh, storm developed. Uh, it started in the Oklahoma panhandle uh, and the climate um, or the average type of storm that forms there in November uh, typically heads up towards the Great Lakes. And this was one of those storms that intensified and led to the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Yeah, so I guess let's talk about the ship itself, um, you know, looking at the weather conditions, but also looking at this ship, it was massive. Um, you know, maybe from what you've learned or your knowledge of it, um, and then why you know it couldn't it couldn't hold up to to the storm's magnitude. Yeah, so uh, it was uh, launched in June of 1958, and at that time, it was the largest ship on the Great Lakes, uh, and it remained that way. Uh, until 1971. So yeah, it was a huge ship, uh, almost uh, 730 feet long, almost 14,000 tons. Um, and so when it was launched, it was such a big deal that there was an estimated 15,000 people who showed up at the docks to watch it launched off. It, you know, again, you know, this, this ship had made many, many trips, uh, setting a number of records um, in terms of how much cargo it could carry. It typically carried talconite pellets, which were iron ore that we used to uh, make automobiles. Uh, and on that uh, fateful day when it crashed, it was carrying enough to make 7,500 automobiles. Um, and that's automobiles of the 1970s, uh, which are a lot heavier than today's uh, automobiles. It had been in storms, many storms. I mean, it was, they were very seasoned uh, pilots uh, that ran that ship. But uh, this was one of those storms where, um, you know, um, it it was able to to uh, bring down bring down the ship. Yeah, you know, as we look at both the magnitude of the storm, we look at the just the size of this ship. Um, you know, do you have a theory of was it a combination of things? Um, that led to the wreck? Was it um, just, you know, all, all kind of coming together in, in one bad day on, on the water? Yeah, I, I think it was exactly that, a combination of uh, really bad weather, uh, bad timing. Um, I think as we uh, looked at the, um, the Marine reports afterwards, the investigations that looked at what happened to the ship, uh, and looked at the radio transactions between um, the Fitzgerald and the Anderson, uh, there are some clear things I think that was happening. One was uh, the boat had a list, um, so it was tilted. Uh, they were running their pumps to get water out of the ship. Uh, and so they were 
clearly thinking that water was getting into the ship somehow. And that's pretty much what the conclusions was, was that water was getting into the ship, getting into the cargo holes. And if you think of, of, of a pile of sand and you pour water on that sand, the water doesn't leak out, it fills the air spaces. Um, and so these little marble, iron marbles, as water was getting in uh, to those cargo bays, the water was staying in, uh, trapped in those uh, bubbles. So what that would do is, as it got into the air between uh, the iron telkinite pellets, uh, the ship would get heavier and heavier. Um, and as the pumps were running, they wouldn't be getting the water out. And so I think it was a combination of events, a really nasty storm, taking on water somehow. We don't really know how it was getting in uh, to the ship, but that would lower the boat. Um, and then if you listen to, again, go back and look at the communications, uh, McSorley, who was a every season captain, talked about these being the largest seas he had ever been in. Um, and so if you imagine you got big 15, 20 foot waves, which were being observed at the time, taking on more water, the ship gets lower, the waves even look bigger. Um, so there was a lot of things consistent that the, uh, the ship was taking on some water, getting lower. They had no idea of the danger that they were in. Uh, and then eventually they had a communication. You know, the communication was that they were holding their own. Uh, then a squall line comes by, um, visibility goes to zero. Nobody can see each other. Um, and it runs right into what the Marine report thinks happened is that it ran into a large wave that momentum slowed the boat down. And then all those telkinite pellets all rode to the front, to the bow of the boat, broke the boat and it sank in, in less than five minutes. So it was that wow. combination of uh, bad events, uh, bad weather, taking on water and hitting a large wave at the wrong time. Yeah, and from this event, a lot has changed in both the marine industry, the, the shipping container industry, I mean, we're, we're still talking about this event today and, and the impact it's had, you know, can you share with me some of, some of the influence and, and that it's had over time? Um, yeah. So, you know, pretty much right after that, there were shipping regulations and practices that were uh, changed in order, you know, to learn lessons from this disaster. Uh, for example, it is now mandatory to have survival suits uh, on board um, it's mandatory to have depth finders. Uh, people need to have positioning systems. Uh, they increase the freeboard uh, in terms of the shipping on the Great Lakes. Uh, and they require now more inspection vessels uh, than inspection of the vessels than they have now. And of course, weather forecasting has gotten a lot better. Um, and so the danger, uh, even though they did a pretty good forecast, um, the forecasters are much better now than they were in 1975. We would like to thank the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum for their resources and audio, as well as Michigan State University for their audio. Thanks to Professor Steve Ackerman for his interview about the wreckage. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Making Wisconsin a History of the Badger State. Look out for upcoming episodes on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Making Wisconsin a History of the Badger State is hosted by Charlie Shortino and me, Gabriella Rusk. 
It's produced and edited by Vanessa Reza and Keegan Schlosser. It's overseen by Nick Viviani and Jessica Leshesky.